The reading tonight is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and continues on Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Chapter 4. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but he shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
This is the word of the Lord. Good, let me pray for us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd help us to do just that. As we gather around your word now, help us to devote ourselves to uh, your word for us, your word for us as individuals, your word for us As a community, we pray you'd give us minds to understand, ears to hear, hearts to respond in faith and in action. And I pray as you speak to us this evening, you'd make us increasingly a community of deep fellowship. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Those who draw near to God draw near to one another. Those who draw near to God draw near to one another. It is inevitable, the Bible says, when God calls us to himself, he makes us sons and daughters. So when God calls us to himself, he calls us to one another by making us brothers and sisters. And it seems to me that the more we reflect on God's love for his people, the more we will reflect God's love to his people. The greater our experience of God's love, in whatever form that takes, the greater we will express that love towards God's people. Uh, Love for God and love for his people are intimately related. They are organically related. And therefore, it becomes quite a good litmus test for us, it seems to me, at where we are spiritually as a church community, as a congregation, will reflect to some extent where we are, uh, or sorry, the other way around, will be uh, reflected by how we relate to each other socially, how we support one another, how we love for one another, how we care for one another. That will be an excellent litmus test for where we are spiritually, because love for God and love for God's people go hand in hand. And that's what we see played out in the life of the early church, in the life of the first church that we stumble across here in Acts uh, chapter 2. You'll remember, they've had a common experience. We saw that last week. They've heard the gospel. They've heard of uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They've heard the call of God upon their lives. They've heard the promise of forgiveness in Christ. They've heard the promise of new life in Christ. And as you look back a few verses, you see that many, 3,000, have responded in repentance. They have turned to Christ and in faith. And they've been baptized. So they've now been marked out, if you like, as members of a new God-centered, god created community. And that leads directly to our passage this evening. It leads, this common experience leads to a common devotion. A common devotion towards uh, God, 
So they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, which could mean hospitality generally, or it could be referring to the Lord's Supper, or it could be referring to both, because it seems in the early church it was quite often the case that you would have a meal at someone's house, and then that became the Lord's Supper. It was then sort of shared as part of that meal, so it could be both. And to prayer, so a common devotion to God. But that common devotion to God came with, do you see, a common devotion to one another. The fellowship. Their Christian life, right from the start, was one that was going to be lived side by side. These two devotions, to God and to one another, are mutually reinforcing. As they draw near to God in devotion, so they draw near to one another in devotion. I want us to think about verses 44 and 45. Have a look down with me. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. First of all, let me say what this is not describing. I do not think this is describing sort of a a proto-form of communism. Uh, There's nothing in the New Testament or the Bible about giving up your rights to, for instance, private ownership. Uh, There is nothing about deliberately, uh, necessarily, uh, impoverishing oneself. There is nothing uh, that is said to be wrong with wealth, per se. There are a lot of warnings in the Bible about how one deals with wealth if you find yourself in the position to have been blessed by God with wealth. There are a lot of warnings to the wealthy. But wealth in and of itself, per se, is not wrong. It is the love of money, you remember, that is the root of all kinds of evil, not money itself. There is nothing here, you see. What is happening here is not sort of rigid. It's not enforced. What this is, in verses 42 to 47, is family. That's what it is. It's family life. It's relational it flows, this, this selling of property and giving to those who are really in need in the community flows from a desire to live as the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the giving is, is needs-based, and it is sacrificial, and it is selfless, but it is voluntary. It's not communism, in fact, that will bring a true commonality to the world. Uh, It's not the will of the state. It will be the work of the Spirit. It's salvation. It's salvation that brings true community, true commonality. I forget who said this. It may have been Khrushchev, but somebody uh, involved in communism said communism's failure was the failure to produce a selfless man. You see? That's the point. If it's imposed by the state, it does not change the heart. What we need is a radical work of the Holy Spirit to change us and make us people of generosity. What we need is a radical work of the Holy Spirit by which we become truly family, brothers and sisters in Christ with bonds that are deeper even than biological family bonds. It is salvation that brings us true God-centered community where the wealthy, for instance, don't necessarily cease to be wealthy, but rather they, de- they develop a new desire to use their wealth for good. Use their wealth to meet the needs of the needy in the church family, to support gospel work, and to support those further afield. 
The point, it seems to me, of verses 44 and 45 is this, that a God-gathered, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled community values people over possessions. A God-gathered, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled community values people over possessions. It's interesting, we don't really have time to look particularly at the contrast that is drawn, and the contrast is drawn between Barnabas and uh, Ananias and uh, Sapphira in uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But it seems that Barnabas uh, gets this. He's a a God-centered, Jesus-centered, spirit-filled man. He's got a real desire to serve the church and to meet the needs of the needy. And so he voluntarily sells some of his property, a field, and he lays the money at the disciples' feet so that uh, it can be used for the needy. What he does flows from his relationship with God and uh, with others. And it seems, and you must go away and read the passage again and see what you think, but it seems to me that what's happening here is that Ananias and Sapphira do not act out of this same sort of relational um, same relational concern. Actually, it seems, I think, their concern is a reputational one, not a relational one. They, they, they want to get a reputation. Uh, the issue, I think, is not the amount they bring. It's interesting what the disciples say, isn't it? Um, you were free to bring whatever you like. Actually, you were free not to sell the field in the first place, they say to them. You were free to bring whatever you like. But what they've done is they've brought a part as if it were the whole. Isn't that what's going on? I think that's what's going on in chapter 5. They bring a part as if it was a whole. They lie, it seems to me, in order to get a reputation for being generous. So what's at issue here is not so much how much they give, it's the deceit, it's the hypocrisy that lies behind it. And the disciples say, you've lied in what you've done. You've lied uh, to God, you've lied to the fellowship. And that is why God brings uh, their judgment forward. It seems that they do not love God. At this point, they're not devoted to him. They're not devoted to others. They're actually devoted to building their own name rather than meeting the needs of the needy. Very opposite of what the Spirit is trying to work in the community. And that is why God brings his judgment forward and they are judged ahead of time, as it were, because we're at a unique time in the development of the church and this lie cannot be allowed to live. The picture here of church life is one of codependence and one of generosity. Codependence and generosity. And I think codependence and generosity are so key because, of course, there is a sense in which codependence and generosity characterize the life of the Trinity. In other words, it's to characterize our family life precisely because it characterizes our God's life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, in a sense, codependent, and they are generous towards one another. And Jesus prays in John 17, doesn't he, that his church family would enjoy the life of the Trinity, that God's life would flow and abound in the family life. And so if the, God, the Godhead that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are codependent and generous, then we, as his people, will be codependent and generous. And I want to think about several ways in which we can do that. How do these verses speak to us this evening? How might we support each other, and particularly the needy in this context, in sacrificial, selfless, and voluntary ways? Well, first, let's think financial. Of course, there was no welfare state when this was written. There were no uh, sort of day centers and that sort of thing. If you didn't have personal resources or you didn't have um, 
uh, personal relatives who could support you, you were in real trouble. You were in real trouble. Uh, You begged or you starved. God's new community, moved by devotion to God into devotion towards one another, is called to express that devotion in part financially, to support those in desperate need because they are their brothers and their sisters. The resources of the church were and still are finite. And later on in the New Testament, we get more details on guidelines for what is sustainable support, and we need to be wise. But the principle remains, those in real need are to receive real physical aid, support. It always strikes me, it's very interesting, isn't it, the prayer that Jesus gave his followers to pray, we call the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day, he says, pray this, give Give us this day our daily bread. Not give me this day my daily bread. He says, when you're praying this, give us this day our daily bread. Makes it a corporate prayer. Now, why does he do that? Why do we pray as a family for God's physical provision for the family? Why is it that God has called, if you like, the wealthy man and the the person in need, to pray this together for each other. Well, surely it teaches us that God's purpose is to provide in part for his church through his church. Surely it teaches that. God gives an abundance to some in his family that they might provide for others in his family. If people in church have plenty, they have it in part as answer to this prayer, a prayer prayed by all in the family, including the needy. Now, if that is the case, how could we not give to those in real need when the plenty I'm enjoying comes in part through their prayer for me? Give us this day our daily bread. How could I not do that? Surely it teaches that. Here's Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, great, um, <coughs> excuse me, a reformer of the 16th century, who of course was burnt down, uh, down uh, in, in the centre of Oxford for his faith. The, the language is a little archaic, but it's so beautiful and so, I think, spot on, I wanted to read it to you. So here's him on Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread. For this petition, give us this day our daily bread, is God's storehouse, God's treasure house. Here lieth all his provision, and here you fetch it in prayer. But ever have in remembrance that this is a common prayer. A poor man prayeth as well as thou. And perhaps God sendeth this riches unto thee for another man's prayer's sake, who prayeth for thee whose prayer is more effectual than thine own. You see this point? It may even be that you're being blessed with plenty through praying that prayer, not because your prayer was particularly effectual, but because the needy person's prayer was more effectual. Now, when you start to think like that, how could we not be, those of us in plenty, not be quick to volunteer what those in desperate need might need? You might ask the question, why doesn't God bless all people with exactly the same amount? Uh, Why doesn't he just directly raise the the estate of the needy? And there's a sense in which I can't answer that question. But I suppose one of the things I might want to say to that is that I think it's because God wants to to encourage us to live like a family, doesn't he? 
He's wanting to encourage us to be codependent and generous. Uh, he wants those in plenty to support and love and care for those in need because that is godly. That's what he's trying to grow in us. I think the answer might lie in part there. The Bible calls us to use our resources to, pride, uh, to provide for our own uh, biological families and our own futures, of course. But he also calls on us to provide for the church family, its material needs, and the needs of its gospel ministry. Now, of course, we live uh, in a welfare state in this country, and our taxes uh, rightly support those in particular need. But there might be times when, uh, for some reason, financial assistance is desperately needed by a member of the congregation for a certain time. And it is right that we would seek to find a way in which we can uh, help with that, either to signpost where money might be or to provide directly uh, or whatever it might be. But of course, our physical needs are actually bigger than financial, are they not? There, there, there is more to our physical needs than merely money. <coughs> I was um, reading a book recently uh, called um, Side by Side, written by an American uh, theologian and counselor by the name of Ed Welch. And he was talking about the fact that the Christian life is to be lived side by side in community. And uh, he wrote this uh, little um, uh, book, which I commend to you. And in it, he says this. He's talking about uh, people in particular need. And he says, it's a lovely thing to be able to say, um, you know, if there's anything I can do, please, please let me know. He says, there's nothing wrong with saying that. It's a lovely thing to say. But so often, of course, people won't say anything. Um, and if that's true in America, I think it's probably doubly true in England. Um, if there's you know, anything I can do, let, do let me know. Oh, yes. So he says, better... Better is to think. And he says this, quote, Consider what needs to be done and do it. Wise friends buy more dog food. Do the dishes. Drop off a meal. Cut the grass. Babysit the kids. Clean the house. Give a ride to house group. Drop off a note of encouragement. And then another. And then another. Help sort out medical bills. This is American. And so on. Any such acts of love and service make life easier for the person in need. And a meal is never just a meal. Made service is never merely a time saver for those served. These acts say to the sufferer, I remember you. I think about you often. You are not forgotten. You are on my heart. I love you. The time we give to creative strategizing is the power behind such acts. It is unmistakable love that mimics the strategic planning of the triune God's rescue mission. He planned and acted even before we knew our real needs. It's very helpful. Practical ways we can help. Dropping off meals, doing the dishes, volunteering to babysit, cutting the grass. There are 101 ways, if you know someone well, that if they are in a season of need, we can think how practically, we can work out what practically they need. Let's set about doing it. Finally, emotional. Because it's more than physical, isn't it? We can find ourselves in emotional need. I, was, uh, I saw this this week. If you've been reading the newspapers, you would have seen it. There's been a, a, another big series of stories on loneliness. Did anyone read that in the papers? It was uh, in, I think, most of the national papers last week. Uh, one headline was this, loneliness has become an epidemic. I, I read this. In January, the local government association said loneliness should be treated as a major health issue. Well, charity Age UK claimed the issue blights the lives of over a million older people. Britain has 7.1 million people living alone, many unhappily. We are less likely to have strong friendships or know our neighbours than people anywhere else in Europe. 
And they went on to say this, although loneliness is often viewed as a problem for older people, a recent study by the Mental Health Foundation found that 18 to 34-year-olds were more likely to feel lonely than the over 55s. Uh, one person from the Centre for Social Justice said, there is something about, uh, sorry, there is something British about wanting to deal with problems yourself. Loneliness has become an epidemic. Someone was chatting to me about this last Sunday morning, in fact. Someone came up to me and was talking about this very thing. There should be something radically different about the church family. There really should. There should be something radically different about us. Loneliness should not be at home here. We are family. We are family. Now, there will, of course, be uh, elderly in our congregation whose relatives are uh, dead or geographically distant or emotionally distant, and we have a responsibility towards them. I came across this statistic. Again, I think this was Age uh, Concern UK. Over a million older people haven't spoken to a friend, neighbor, or family member for at least a month. And that's one of the reasons why we run things like Lunch Club, Holiday at Home, uh, why we start the art class on a Tuesday, all these things. Uh, as a way of making sure that doesn't happen. We do, we, we do our very best to provide points of contact and genuine family because we're a family. And we want to find ways in which we can support one another and be social with one another. Uh, and actually, that's, it is a responsibility, but it's more than a responsibility. It's actually an opportunity because it takes a whole church to raise a church. And I can tell you, as I said to the Sunday morning congregation last week, some of the most encouraging times I have in my life is when I go visit some of the senior members of our congregation who have lived the Christian life for 40, 50, 60 years. And I tell you, I leave more encouraged by them than I'm sure they're encouraged by me as I hear the stories of God's faithfulness to them over the years. It's wonderful. We must work hard at thinking how we can share these stories amongst us. We're a multi-generational church. The church works best when there is contact between the generations, and the senior folk in the church can speak to the younger folk and vice versa. We want to find ways of increasing that. We were at a parish lunch, or many of us, 60 or 70 of us this afternoon, Sarah Bedwell has started these monthly parish lunches, which are fantastic. People from all the various congregations come, and you have true sort of multi-generational, intergenerational lunchtime together. Fantastic thing, fantastic thing. We want to be doing more of that. The report notes, though, that it's not just an issue for the elderly. Uh, Somebody said this. Does interacting socially via technology reduce or replace face-to-face social interaction or alter social skills? It was talking about the sort of 18 to 35 age group. Has Facebook made us an increasingly lonely generation? Uh, That's the hustle and bustle of uh, such busy work lives. Uh, Is that beginning to create social isolation in the younger generation? But again, that's where house groups are so important. It's where we need to find ways to extend hospitality to one another. Again, across the generations. Uh, it's where parish lunches are so, are so, so good. And we need to be actively thinking, how can, we, how can we do what we can to stop loneliness finding a place here amongst us? How can we welcome people? How can we draw people in? We're children of the same Heavenly Father. We journey together. We live side by side. We need each other. We have responsibilities towards each other. They're more than duties. They're family life. And as we learn from one another, as we love one another, as we care for one another, as we support one another, as a multi-generational family of God, we'll grow as a church family. We'll fill God's pleasure, if you like, as we increasingly inhabit his design and purposes for us. And... 
we will witness to the power of the risen Christ at work amongst us. And we will witness to the beauty of the kingdom that he is building in an increasingly splintering world. Just as the life of the early church so powerfully witnessed to the reality of the risen Christ amongst them. Look how it finishes. Praising God. Enjoying the favor of all the people. Look at this new community. How they love each other. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen.